exercise your tummy muscles and you don't put on so much weight. As I don't get about to people these days, that's why I look a bit fat. But please understand, this is not fat. I've been a monk now over 40 years and every year you're a monk, your heart gets bigger with compassion. And my heart is now so big, it can't push out the chest here, so it goes down this way, pushes itself. This is just a sign of a big heart. That's why I get here, yeah, don't get exercise. So it's great to be here, obviously, and uh, with the... Can you hear okay in the back? Can you put your hands up if it's a good sound? Louder. Okay, can... Is this any better? Maybe Let me play with your mic. Okay. 
<laughs> I can hold it and see that. No, no, it worked work better on your ear. Oh, okay, on my ear, okay.
Because I could do that and say, come on, you mum and dad, you know, your kids made a mistake. So, but what really worried me after that was why is it that kids, when they are really in trouble with drugs, with the police, pregnant or whatever, why is it they're afraid to tell their parents? And instead they hide the truth. And that sort of brought me into understanding why people lie and all the problems which get, you get from your wife lying to you, the husband lying to you, children lying to their parents, politicians lying to the public. Why do they do that? And of course the reason is because they're scared of telling the truth. And they feel there's greater benefit for them if they lie than if they tell the truth. There's an old story of this, this man in court and he was defending, he was a defendant or rather the accused in a murder trial. He was accused of murder and he was in a state which still had the death penalty. And during the, uh, the trial, the judge thought he was lying and warned the defendant. He said, sir, don't you realise the penalties for lying in court are very severe? And the defendant says, yes, your honour, I know the penalty for perjury is very severe, but it's far less than the penalty for murder. <laughs> That is why we lie. And so for your children, those of you who have children, if you want your children to tell you the truth, so that you can help them when they're in big trouble, like a daughter is pregnant, or a son is in trouble with drugs, please let your children know, as long as they tell the truth, there will be no penalty that you will not scold them or punish them, no matter what they have done, as long as they tell the truth. And that way, if your children trust you that much, that when they are in trouble, the parents will be the first people they go to for help. And they won't be afraid that their father, when they heard they'd be messing around with drugs, would explode, go ballistic, punish them, or whatever. As long as they're telling the truth, no punishment, because we're here to help you get past that problem. And wouldn't it be wonderful if when people get married, that they also take a vow not to punish each other as long as they're being told the truth. So if someone has misbehaved in a marriage, or they're thinking about it, they're not afraid of telling their husband and their wife <coughs> the truth. Because when we're afraid of being scolded, being shouted at, being even physically punished, that is what hides the truth. And when we hide the truth, the problem gets worse and worse and worse. So one of the great things which I learned as a young monk in Buddhism was that we can make mistakes. We acknowledge, we don't hide them. And there's forgiveness straight away. We don't stop at forgiveness, we learn from it. And we're, we are courageous enough to tell each other what we've done and to understand that no one here is perfect, that we can admit our mistakes and share it with other people, which means we learn from it. We don't take the mistakes so seriously that we feel bad about ourselves, because that doesn't help anybody also. And it also means we can open ourselves to other people who can really help us. 
So certainly in a family, if you want, at least in a family, people to tell the truth, then please don't punish your kids or your partner. As long as they're saying what really happened, they're being as honest as they can. They're saying that because they want help. They want support. They're in a problem and they need help to get out of it. Otherwise, we will lie. And the truth will go further and further underground. So that's the first little lesson. Please acknowledge, especially the people you love and care for, what you've done. And then always give forgiveness so they're not afraid of you. And then we learn from our mistakes. It's incredible what happens when we learn from our mistakes instead of punishing. That's why in Buddhism, in the monastic world, we don't have punishments. It's very hard for a person to understand that at first. And a good example of that is you know, one of the people in the monastery in which I live, over in Australia, they were training to become a monk. And in our tradition, when you first enter the training, you wear white and you're supposed to keep what is called the eight precepts, one of which is not eating anything in the afternoon. As monks and nuns, we just eat in the morning. And if you think that's bad for your health, look at me, how fat I am. And I'll eat in the morning. If I eat in the evening as well, I'd explode. <laughs> so it's not that hard to do, just eating in the morning time. But this young man in training, he was an Australian man, he came to see me one morning and he said, I have to confess to you. He said, I haven't slept all night, I feel so guilty, because yesterday afternoon I was hungry and I went into the monastery kitchen, made myself a sandwich and ate it. I, I broke the rules, sorry. <laughs> and what I said to him was, it's okay to make a mistake, so you're forgiven. Now try these strategies. There's so many other things as a monk you can eat in the afternoon. Chocolate, cheese, you can have honey, fruit juice, carrot juice, there's so much stuff you can eat. So have more for lunch. If you get hungry, you get a jar of honey and drain that if you want. <laughs> and he said, thank you. He said, and I said, oh, you can go now. He said, what do you mean, I can go? You're not going to punish me? So no, no penance? No, we don't have punishments in Buddhism. And then he said to me, Ajahn Brahm, if you don't punish me, I will do the same thing again. That's my nature. <laughs> so he put me in a difficult situation. He demanded a penance. So I thought very quickly, and I told this young man, I said, Interesting you ask this question, because this morning I've been reading in a book of Australian history how they treated the convicts which were sent to Australia. It started off as a convict colony. And they would treat those convicts very harshly. If they made any mistake, they were whipped with a whip called the Cat of Nine Tails, a traditional, very harsh Australian punishment. So I said, well, okay, if you want a traditional Australian punishment, I'm going to sentence you to 50 strokes of the cat. And at that, this man, his jaw dropped. <laughs> it's not equivalent. And I could read his mind, that's not what I meant. <laughs> he really thought that a Buddhist monk was going to flog him. 
That's how it literally understood. So I looked at him and said, in this monastery, this is what 50 strokes of the cat means. We have two cats. Find one of them and stroke it. One, two. Love us of compassion, you hard-hearted young man. So that's my favourite penance. If anybody wants to be punished, they find a cat and stroke it. But why is it we want to be punished? Why can't we just forgive, learn, let go? Because somewhere inside of us, we feel we've done something wrong, therefore we don't deserve to be happy. And that, please, is bullshit. I don't mind saying that. And if anybody objects to me saying things like bullshit, please read the Buddha's teachings. There you will find, in places like the Aradhavi Sutta, in the Vinaya as well, the Buddha said, monks, monks, wherever you go, you must teach in the local language. <laughs> this is San Francisco, you say bullshit, I say bullshit. <laughs> so what do you want to be punished for? You know there's a lot of problems in places like California, where people have got a lack of self-worth. Why they don't have happiness? They can't keep a relationship. You know why? Because they think they don't deserve it. It's basic psychology. And so for a lot of people, I had to prove to them they deserved happiness. And when they didn't believe it, I decided, because they were my disciples and they really respected me, I decided to make them a happiness certificate. I went into the office on letterhead paper, I wrote this license and said this license gives to the holder permission to be happy at any time, for any reason or no reason in particular, sign Ajahn Brahm. No expiry date by the way. And I gave, I gave it out to people, it was very popular. <laughs> they put it by their bed, in their house by the office. You're allowed to be happy. <laughs> because I knew there was something very powerful there. That somehow or other people think they feel guilty when they're happy. They don't deserve it. They haven't forgiven themselves. Because a lot of the time, your, and please excuse me, your parents, your teachers have always been telling you off. Telling you you're not good enough. Telling there's something wrong with you. And there ain't nothing wrong with you. I can prove this for you. Because how many people spend thousands of dollars going to self-improvement classes. That's a con. What do you mean to be improved? There's nothing wrong with you. Who's trying to improve you anyway? How do they know? You're good enough. And to impress that upon you, I've been recently going to mental health conferences. People with severe trauma, sometimes mental disabilities, who are stigmatised by their state of mind. Schizophrenic, depressed, something wrong with you. And I've asked them to go into the forest. You go into the forest outside of San Francisco somewhere and please find me a perfect tree. By a perfect tree, I mean one which is straight, which is not bent or crooked, with all the branches in the right places equally, equally spaced.
with the leaves all green, no yellow or brown leaves, just perfectly green leaves, and not mottled or eaten by insects, and with a bark which is nice and smooth, with no scars on the bark. If you can find me a tree like that, it must be a government-run plantation. <laughs> or botanical gardens or somewhere. Not real trees. Because if you go into a natural forest, you'll find every one of those trees are bent and crooked somewhere. They've got branches which have been broken off. And in the holes left by those branches, that's where the birds make their nests. And there's many yellow and brown leaves. And if you look on the bark, there are many scars there. And those are the most beautiful trees in the forest. As for me, the crooked ones, which are bent all over the place, which have got lots of scars and nobbles on the bark, they've got character, they're beautiful. They're the ones I like the most. So, if you are bent and crooked, if you've got scars all over you, if you are what they call these days damaged goods, you belong as one of the beautiful trees in the natural forest. Welcome. Do you get the point? Who is telling you you're not perfect? I love the crooked trees, the damaged ones. They have got character. And this is part of the Buddhist teachings there. You're not trying to change yourself. You're trying to accept yourself and care for yourself. Story number three or four, I don't know how many stories I've done so far, but there was a young Sri Lankan man, again, grown up with me. His parents brought him to the temple when he was very young. So you always give you know, kids advice. It's like having another member of the family, like a, a grandfather monk and, or a grandmother nun, an extra person with wives who can help you. So, this young man came in, he'd gone through high school, gone through university, gone through medical school, he was in his first year as a doctor. And he came to me in great distress, about to give up his career. Because he said something happened the day before, which had shook him to the core, and made him reconsider his whole career. One of his patients, the first patient under his care, had died. And it was a tragic case of a young woman, maybe 24, 25, had died. And he, as the doctor, had to tell the husband, the woman he loved so much was no more. And the mother of his children was dead. And that was such a hard thing to say. Something which devastated this man and the kids. They got no more mother. They died. And he said, I just cannot do that again. It was the hardest thing he'd ever done and he didn't want to do it again. And that's when I told him he'd misunderstood the purpose of being a doctor. The purpose of being a doctor is not to cure your patients. If you think that that's your job, but that's the reason you're a doctor. You are going to fail many, many times in your career. You can have many people who are going to die, and you're their doctor. You will always fail if you think that is the purpose of medicine. The purpose of being a doctor, the purpose of medicine, is not to cure people, it's to care for people. 
And if you care for the people under you, you'll never need to fail. You can always care for someone, you can't always cure them. And if a patient dies, but they know they've been cared for, then they die beautifully. And the whole family is so thankful. They died, their family member, their loved one died being really cared for. And then you never need to feel a failure. And he went back to work afterwards. He's a specialist now, I forget what field. And he realised that what his job was, to care, not to cure. And I think you know, even in the US, when somebody gets close to dying, how curing becomes more important than caring. And you have all these incredibly unpleasant interventions at the end of life, curing people at all costs and forgetting caring is more important than curing. And number two, if you care for someone, as he has been doing, many more people get cured than if you didn't care for them. That kindness is incredibly powerful therapeutically. And I think those of you listen to me, you know that intuitively. If you're cared for, the success rate of operations or therapy increases enormously. So he has become a much better doctor. Curing is a byproduct of caring. It is not the first thing you look for. So, how does that uh, relate to what I've been talking about with trees and yourself? How many of you are trying to cure yourselves? Make yourself psychologically better? Get rid of all of your defilements, as they say in Buddhism. Become a better person. You're trying to cure yourself. And that is endless. What you're saying is, I'm not good enough. I need to be something different. Self-improvement means more problems. So stop, stop trying to improve yourself. Stop trying to cure yourself. Care for yourself instead. And then you find the improvement happens afterwards. There was this fellow who went into the bookshop and he asked the attendant, can you please tell me where the self-help section is? And the attendant said, if I told you where the self-help section was, that would be defeating the purpose. <laughs> It's just like, you know, you've got the albums of like the Rolling Stones and you've got the Eagles, wherever else it is. You've got the albums, but you still go to see it live. You've heard it many times, but this is a live performance. <laughs> so instead of trying to improve yourself, you know, care for yourself, and then you find actually you do start to improve them. You don't need to sort of force yourself to improve. Though, with a happiness certificate, I was given them out for many years, and this young woman who was on a retreat with me, you know, nine-day meditation retreat, she came up to me, she was really upset. She said, I'm fed up 
with trying to be happy. I feel so guilty. You know, meditation was supposed to be happy and smiling all the time, but I don't feel like smiling, it's driving me crazy. <laughs> so I went into my office and gave her another license. It's called the Grumpy License. <laughs> and again, a nice head notepad with nice calligraphy. This license offers to the holder permission to be grumpy at any time for any reason, for no reason or other, for the rest of her life. You can be grumpy if you want to. And that was such a wonderful thing for her. Now she didn't feel guilty as a Buddhist, as a meditator, not being happy. Does anyone here feel guilty that they're not happy? That you're a failure in life? Everyone in California, especially in San Francisco, should be happy. <laughs> and I'm not. Especially if you're a monk or a nun. You're always supposed to be happy and wise. Sometimes you don't feel like being happy and wise. So you be, give yourself permission to be grumpy. It's alright to be grumpy. It's alright to be upset. It's alright to be angry. If that's how you feel. So give yourself permission to be grumpy. And as soon as I gave her this certificate, she was allowed to be grumpy. She laughed. She wasn't grumpy anymore. That's how it works. If you try and stop being angry, you get more angry. If you allow yourself to be grumpy, you're not grumpy anymore. This is deep Buddhist psychology. You let things be, and then they heal. You try and cure them, and they get worse. Basic Buddhist psychology, letting things be. Loving them, caring for them, forgiving them. Then improvement starts. Our mistake is trying to fix things up. We're great fixer-uppers. Fixing up our husbands, fixing up our wives. Stop trying to fix up your partner or try and change them. It's impossible if you try that. <laughs> Instead, care for your partner. And then they fix up all by themselves. Have ever you had a partner who's always trying to change you, fix you up, making you something you're not? And that really pisses you off. Remember this is California, you say, I'm feeling pissed off, so I have to use a local language, please don't get upset. <laughs> so after a while, you understand how the psychology works, and you care rather than cure. And this is what you do with meditation. There's a huge, this is supposed to be insight and meditation. Do you meditate here, or are you just coming here for the talk, for an evening of entertainment for the jokes? Okay, yeah. Very good. Okay, but anyway, with a lot of time with meditation, people try and improve themselves, and it's called mindfulness. Mindfulness is not enough. This is one of the reasons I'm coming up here, to take it to the next level, which is really important. Just being aware is not good enough. Instead, we have to have a little bit of kindness. When you put mindfulness and kindness together, it's called kindfulness. <laughs> you heard it first here. <laughs> and you'll soon see, you know, on the ABC, in the newspapers, mindfulness training goes to the next level of kindfulness. 
So you're aware of the problems in your life and you're kind to them, compassionate towards them. And then it's incredible how that heals all the problems in your life. I was telling people this afternoon, even physical problems. This afternoon I told the story of when I had bad food poisoning. As a Buddhist monk, I'm not allowed to cook for myself. Uh, very often you can't choose the food you eat, so you eat whatever you're given. So very often you have tummy ache, sometimes even worse. <laughs> it's called an occupational hazard for a monk or a nun. So this time, now actually I was given a talk once in Kuala Lumpur and I don't know what I'd eaten that day, but I bathed on stage. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the most memorable talks I gave. <laughs> it happens, okay. So you laugh at it and tell everybody, you don't hide it. There's nothing wrong with me in my tummy, that's all. But anyway, on this occasion, over in Australia, I had food poisoning. That's in the next stage up from indigestion. That's when your, your um, muscles in your stomach or your intestines, they cramp up. It's really painful. And so I was in the room which I live, which happens to be a cave. And I live in there, and I was just moaning away with food poisoning. Any sensible person would call a doctor and go to the hospital. But I'm not sensible. Monks were a bit strange. Well, you know, we're better than sensible. So instead of going to a doctor and just you know, going to these places, it's a long way from our monastery to see the doctor, and you have to wait in line and just, whew, takes forever. But anyway, instead of doing that, you've got the other way of doing things. Kindfulness. So I put my awareness on the physical pain, which was almost intolerable. I could be aware of it. And you find when you're aware of physical feelings and sensations in the body, they change. They're not always the same. Sometimes it hurts a lot, sometimes a great deal, but it's never the same. And it changes intensity. And I was watching what makes the physical pain a little bit less. And I, you know, I've been doing this for such a long time, I know what works, how to relax my body. And it's just a little bit of kindness. Now kindness, for those of you who are Buddhist, kindness doesn't mean may all beings be happy and wealthy. <laughs> that is wrong. That is like me telling this lady, you have to be happy, and she got very upset. I want to be grumpy. Kindness is allowing someone to be grumpy. Kindness is allowing someone to be sick. Caring for them, not trying to cure them. May all beings be happy and well is putting your ideas and imposing them on other people. And it's an impossible thing to achieve. <coughs> people are not always going to be happy and well, no more than you are. Instead, the kindness is letting people be, caring for them, not trying to change them. So I did that to my tummy. I'm going to let you be. I'm not going to try and cure you. I'm caring for you. And every time I stop putting pressure on my intestines to get better and I just let them be. It relaxed and the pain got a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less and it took me just 20 minutes, that's all, of kindfulness and all the pain in my intestines vanished. 
disappeared. Now gradually it went to zero and I was fine. No intestinal problems at all, perfectly healthy. 20 minutes curing intense um, food poisoning. And I sometimes, I was a scientist before, theoretical physics at Cambridge, and I was wondering, how can that happen scientifically? Because food poisoning is caused by bacteria. And the bacteria are imitating the lining of your intestines. How can that happen? And I thought, I've got it, I know what's happening. Because I spent 20 minutes, kindness, uh, mindfulness, meditation, that all those bacteria, because I've seen pictures of bacteria, that little blocks with all these little tentacles coming out of them. And I imagine all these tentacles cross-legged in meditation. <laughs> They're all meditating instead of interfering with me. <laughs> I don't know if that was true, but I can't find any other solution. Why the food poisoning disappeared and never came back again. All <laughs> bacteria that only had to meditate in my tummy. You can stay in there. It's not going to cause any problems. Well, that's actually amazing. 20 minutes is all it took with a bit of kindfulness. And of course, we teach that cancer societies. Our local cancer society, I went for, they moved to a new premises in Perth, Western Australia. And they invited me to do the blessing for them. Because they told me I've been going there for over 25 years. The only religious person there simply because I'd helped them so much over all those years. And how do you help them? Please don't try and cure your cancers. Cure your cancer, please care for it. Don't fight the cancer. That's far too aggressive. Care for it. And the metaphor, which um, this is based on, is an old story which I've adapted from the Buddha scriptures. And all the psychologists who come to my talks say this is one of the key stories which they use. They work with this one and it's incredibly powerful. And if you have heard it before, it's worth repeating again and again and again. The story of the anger-eating monster. So this was a story told by the Buddha of a monster, a demon, who came into an emperor's palace while the empress was away. And this was a frightening demon. Even Mr. Spielberg, down in LA, could not imagine, even with all of the resources of DreamWorks, a monster who was that ugly and frightening. And this monster was so terrifying that when it walked into the palace, all the guards who were supposed to be looking after the place, they just went in the doors, they vanished. <coughs> you know, just like sometimes the police in San Francisco, that they're there for you to, to catch you for speeding, but when there's a real big, big um, problem. I don't, I don't know if this happens in San Francisco, but in Australia, even if you report a robbery and there's the thieves in there, about a kilometre away from the scene, they start their sirens to warn the thief they're coming. <laughs> to give the thief a chance to run away so the police don't get into trouble. Because some of the thieves are very violent. Why do police, do they do that there? As soon as you report something, they get the sirens going. That's giving warning to the thieves. They don't get caught that way. It's crazy stuff. But anyway, all the guards, they hit out of fear. 
allowed the monster to go right into the center of the palace and sit on the empress's throne. And as soon as they sat on the throne, that was going too far. And the guards came out and said, Get out! You can't go on there. That's our empress's throne. You can't sit on there. Get out! And those few angry words, that monster grew an inch bigger, more ugly, more frightening, more smelly. And that made even the guards and ministers and everyone in the palace really, really upset. And they came out and they threatened this demon, if you don't move your ass quickly, we're going to carve it out for you. Get out! But every unkind word, every unkind deed or unkind thought even, the monster just grew an inch bigger, more ugly, more smelly, more offensive. By the time the empress came back, this monster was huge. And it was so frightening and so smelly, the stench coming off this monster was so bad that even the maggots crawling on its skin were sick. They threw up. Not even maggots <laughs> could stand the stench. But when the Empress came, the reason why she was the boss, because she was the smartest of them all. When she saw the problem, she knew the solution. She said, Welcome, monster. Thank you for coming into my palace. Why have you waited so long to drop by? Has anyone got you something to drink yet? How about a cup of coffee? A latte, flat white, with soy milk if, you don't, if you're lactose intolerant. <laughs> Out of those few kind words, the monster shrunk an inch smaller, less ugly, less smelly, less offensive. And all the people watching, they got it, they realised their mistake. So a few of them said, do you want something to eat? We can order a pizza for you, we can get monster-sized pizzas now. <laughs> a few others gave them a foot massage, you know reflexology? Because this monster had huge feet, so it took about a dozen of them just for each toe. And it felt so good, the monster, just over there, oh, that's really nice. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. Every kind act, kind word, kind thought, the, the monster shrank an inch smaller, less likely, less made, less offensive. And soon the monster was back to the size when he first came in. For they never stopped with the kindness. He grew smaller and smaller and smaller, till one more act of kindness and the monster vanished completely away. And that's based on a story told by the Buddha. No, he didn't talk about pizzas and foot massages, I added that. But, he said we call those anger-eating demons. You feed them anger and they get bigger and more of a problem. And there are so many anger-eating monsters in this world. You give them anger, get out of here, you don't belong, they get worse. For 25 years I've been teaching people with cancer. Many of your tumours are anger-eating monsters. Get out of here, you don't belong. They get worse. We're getting more tension, more stress, more fear. Instead, love your tumour. That's a hard thing for me to say, but I'll tell you, it works.
difficult thing for you to do. But if you can, raise your game and do that. You realize many tumors, they are stress caused. And you give them stress, they get worse. That's why the, the boss of our cancer group over there, he says, I've been telling people for years, don't fight your cancer. You see too many people die that way. Be kind, care. Change your attitude. And it's not only with cancers, it's people with other traumas in their life. This is being used right now by a little group in Australia called the Australian Society for Survivors of Torture and Trauma. Because you know there's many people in some of these very dark places in our world today who come over to places like the United States, Australia, as refugees, and they've been through hell. The sorts of things which I would never want to go on, and which even describe them just makes your skin crawl. How people have been tortured, multiple rape, have gone through hell and somehow physically survived and made it to a country like the United States. Physically they're free, emotionally they're still being tortured. <coughs> and how do they overcome that torture, those memories? Anger-eating monster. If you say to that terrible trauma of your past, get out of here, you don't belong, it gets worse. The only way, and it's very powerful, but it works. And I wouldn't say this if I didn't have the evidence to prove it. Anecdotal, but it works. You say, welcome. Thank you for having visited me. And when you respond, instead of with ill will, with kindfulness, acknowledging, forgiving, embracing, there's a catharsis. That torture, that trauma, becomes part of you, who you are. You're a damaged tree, but you realise you're beautiful. And I don't mean this just as a word, it really is true. They're at ease with their past. And when they do things like that, the next stage is, they're the ones who teach other people how to overcome the torture and trauma of their lives. Because they can say what I can never say. I know how you feel. And they can also say, I know the way out of this. And they have the authority to be those who lead others out of the emotional hell. Physically, they're out of that dungeon. Emotionally, they're still there until they can be let out. And this beautiful psychology of anger-eating monster. Stop being angry, trying to change things. Care for them, and it changes you. Now that's an extreme of people who have been through torture and multiple rapes. I'm sure there's been many people here who've had very difficult times in your past. You may have even been a few women here who've been raped. How do you overcome that? There are some people here who feel a lot of guilt because of maybe an abortion. How do you overcome that? You may have been abused by your parents. You may have all sorts of pain in your past. How is that? How do you become free of that? This is one of those stories. 
welcome, thank you. Yes, I am damaged. That makes me beautiful like the trees in the forest. Understanding that gives you a path to freedom. And the story which comes with this, the first book which was released of mine in the United States was called Who Ordered the Tripod of Dung? In Australia and Europe, it was called Opening the Door of Your Heart. <laughs> different market, <laughs> different things sell. And in the Open the Door of Your Heart, that was based on a story from my father. And this relates to what I've just been saying. And that was when I was about 13 years of age. My father, in a beat-up old car in London, took me aside and told me something which would change my life. It's one of those moments, but he just planted the seed. The thing which changed my life was recording this many years later as a monk. Because he told me, he said, Son, wherever you go in your life, however you turn out, good or bad, please always remember this. The door of my house will always be open to you, son. I'm your father, I will never lock the door against you. And I was only 13, a boy. I knew that that was something important, but I didn't understand it. Only years later, when I remembered that, he died when I was 16. Many years ago, when I remembered that, I realised that his house was a very poor, what we call in Europe, a council flat, government-assisted housing, really small. He was very poor, and in fact he used to joke, he never, he never used to lock the door of his little apartment. He was never afraid of thieves, in fact he was quite hopeful that burglar would come in, take pity on us and leave us something. <laughs> Now we were legitimately poor, and I realised that's not what he was saying in his house. What he meant to his 13-year-old son was saying, Son, however you turn out in life, whatever you do, wherever you go, the door of my heart will always be open to you, no matter what happens. When I realised that, it was my first encounter with what's called unconditional love. He was my father, I was his son, and that was enough. I didn't need to prove anything. I didn't need to please him. He said, I'd love you to be a good person, but it doesn't matter. Even if you turn out to be a criminal, a serial rapist, a paedophile, whatever, the worst thing in the world, the door of my heart will always be open to you. And that meant so much to me. Not only because it was my father and he was giving me this beautiful, unconditional love, but also I realised that that's what I have to do for others. Doesn't matter who you are, or whatever you are, you get this beautiful open the door of your heart to everybody. And then you get to the next step of doing that to yourself. Which I had to do. Me, tell stupid jokes, can't even keep my robot properly. <coughs> Always coming late for talks. <laughs> Whoever I am, with all my stupidities, the door of my heart is open to me. Come in. And I realised what was happening. There's always a part of yourself, like a part of me, which I was keeping outside. 
the dark side, the shadow side, as they say, the things which, you know, you, you think you shouldn't have done. I wish I hadn't done that. You may have hurt other people, and you're keeping that outside. Or when other people have really hurt you, traumatised you, raped you, tortured you, that's part of who you are. And so I imagined my little heart, like on Valentine's Day, like one of these fake hearts, you know, like on the playing cards, with two little doors on them. I imagine it opening up, and a little ladder coming down to the floor, and there I saw parts of myself I'd rejected and kept outside for such a long time. I invited them in, come on guys, you can come up as well. All the mistakes, all the stupid, all the cruel things I'd done, come in. And that's how I teach other people, and psychologists in front of me do the same. People who have been raped, that person is outside, in the cold, alone, rejected, not part of you. You imagine yourself, when you've got the strength to do this, opening your heart, say, come on little girl, come in. And you embrace that dark side of you. And as soon as it comes in with acceptance, with kindness, with love, problem solved, catharsis. You're not ashamed of that part of you. You're not guilty. You're not trying to get yourself punished anymore for something you never did anyway. You're at peace with yourself. And quite frankly, everyone here, there is some time in your life you have to do that. Open the door of your heart for those things which have happened to you which you're still keeping outside. Dividing yourself, the dark side of you. And these are heroes who do this, people who have been tortured. And that's what they do. Come in. And it comes into their heart. And from that time on, they're at peace. Emotionally they're free, as well as physically. People I talk to in prisons have done some terrible crimes. That doesn't mean they're a terrible person. They have to invite that person inside of them. They reject and kept outside. Then they're at peace. Then they're healed. And then they don't do those crimes ever again. It works. Just like that story where a prison officer in one of the jails in Australia, he called me up, wanted to speak to me personally. Can you please come back to my prison and teach? He said, I'm too busy these days. I've got to go to San Francisco, go all over the world to teach. I've got no time these days. I'll send another monk. And they said, no, we want you. And said, so why me? You know, the typical response, why me? And this prison officer, he gave me one of my best compliments I've ever received. And he said, we want you because in all the years I've been in prison, I'm about to retire, 30, 40 years, I've noticed something unique. All the prisoners who come to you, once released from jail, never ever go back. You've done something. And I, I was actually stunned. What have I done? And I thought about it afterwards. Stories like that open the door of your heart. Stop being guilty. Stop thinking you're a second-class citizen because you've got a record. You're not a felon. You're a person who's committed a felony. That's not being a felon. There's more to you than that crime. You're not a rapist. You're a person who's raped. 
totally different ballgame. You're not a person who's made a mistake. So you're a person who made a mistake, but you're not a mistaken person. Simple little story to end with, and I'll open up to some questions and answers, see where this talk goes next. Two kids in a supermarket, parallel aisles with their mothers. One kid drops a jar of honey, the other kid drops a carton of milk. Both go splat on the floor. The mother of the kid who drops the honey said, you stupid boy. The mother of the kid who dropped the milk said, that was a stupid thing you did. You understand the difference there? How many times have people called you stupid? Rather than saying that's a stupid thing you did. You're not a stupid person. But you're a person who does stupid things, like me. <laughs> no, you're not sort of a tree which is perfectly straight. But you're a perfect tree. You're bent, crooked, fine. So if you want to be happy in life, open the door of your heart to it. And for the goodness sake, lower your expectations. <laughs> I've been teaching that for years. Now it's on Harvard Business School, they got the message. Companies who raise their expectations of themselves and their workers too high, they're the ones who go bust. Lower your expectations to what is reasonable in life. Lower your, please, those of you with a partner, please lower the expectations of your partner. Get real. <laughs> <laughs> when you lower the expectation, you can have a wonderful relationship. How much suffering comes when you expect what life can't give you? The perfect husband. The perfect wife. Please get real. They don't exist except in the movies or except in the glossy magazines or except in opera who says what a perfect husband and wife should be. No. Open the door of your heart to life, which is the last part of opening the door of your heart. Life, come in. Cancer, death, government. <laughs> come in, it's life. When you ask for life, something it can't give you, that is called suffering. All suffering is asking from life, something it can't give you. When you realise the limits of what life can give, then there's no more suffering, instead it's appreciation. The beautiful forests have bent and crooked, scarred trees. Just like the people in front of me now. You're all bent and crooked and scarred. That's why you're beautiful. That's why you're lovable. Thank you for listening. Uh, Very good. Now, you can either do sadness or you can clap. If you're going to clap, give me everything you've got. Until viewers. There's a worse thing as a speaker. Don't always give it off. Okay, now, questions and answers. Who's going to answer? Yes. You don't need to agree with anything, please. Yeah, go ahead. I'll come to the microphone here so I can see if I can hear it. Very good. And please keep me on track for time. If you can't go up, please say. Yes. Yeah. I just want to see you because I was one of your 
very good evangelist. Very good. That's it. Praise. Isn't that wonderful? To praise one another. How many times do you praise your partner? It's been proved psychologically. If you praise your wife, it takes, what is it, 16 seconds for it to get in. So if you want to praise your wife, say your beautiful wife, you're so kind, you're such a wonderful mother to our kids, you're such a great housekeeper, you're so kind and wonderful, keep on going, for another 10 <laughs> seconds to go. And then it gets in. Why does it take so long for us to receive praise? Criticism, darling, you're putting on weight. What? <laughs> Criticism you accept straight away. Why is that? In our society, sorry, in our society, that we are conditioned to receive criticism and to push aside praise. I learned this some years ago when I was given an award from a local university, you know, for my service to the community. And I went up to receive this prestigious award, and of course you have to give a speech. And my speech was something like, thank you so much for this award. There are people in our community who do much more work than I do. I don't know why you've chosen me, but thank you anyway. And I couldn't have done this without the help of all my friends and supporters, but thank you. And then the next year I went to somebody else's award, and they were a hero. It was a, it was a doctor, professor of haematology in our local hospital, you know, who had seen so many people being treated for cancer, and as soon as the treatment was over, they were just sent outside without really much care. So he used his position in the hospital to open up an alternative therapy centre where you can get Reiki, foot massage, homeopathy, anything weird you can do there. <laughs> and his theory was people who had radiation therapy, chemotherapy or whatever, they could go into this little facility afterwards and they would be cared for. If someone was giving you a foot massage, they were with you for half an hour, caring for you. And he realised that that would work. He put his reputation on the line. All of his colleagues thought he was being unscientific, but he pushed ahead. And the result, which, you know, he's a scientist, he took the results afterwards, was a huge improvement in cure rates. And that's why I was given this prize. And I went to his ceremony. When I heard he said, this is a hero. Someone was prepared to sacrifice his reputation to help other people. And when he received his award, he said, I don't know why you gave this award to me. There's many other people in the community who do much better work than I do, and I couldn't have done this with all of my, without the help of all of my colleagues. And I was listening in the audience, and that was my speech last year. <laughs> and that's everybody's speech. You know, whenever you're saying, say, that was nothing, other people do much better than I do, and I couldn't have done that without the help of all my friends. And I realised, why is it we can't receive praise? Why is it we brush aside, no, no, it's nothing, it's just what a monk does. No. If anyone gives you praise, please receive it. And that's respecting the people. You know, there was a group of people, academics, in this university, who considered all the things I had done and other people had done really carefully. These were intelligent, wise people. And I was saying, when I rejected this, I say other people do much better than I do, but thanks anyway. <laughs> I was actually telling you guys are idiots. You don't know what you're doing. 
I was being totally disrespectful. So when your husband says what a wonderful wife you are, don't disrespect him, say, actually, honey, you're right. Thank you. <laughs> what a wonderful world that would be when people accepted praise. So, praise is good. Accept it. Sorry, there's other people coming through. Please come up. Yeah. Thank you for having the courage to ask. Very good. Do you accept I, that? Uh, I'm going to say something that people should have said. Thank you for coming. Very good. Thank you. I deserve that. <laughs> um, I, uh, my only request is uh, the duck story, because I was revealing it to my friends, and I think they should hear it as well. The duck story. Okay. How to solve arguments in a marriage. So here we go. You've heard this on YouTube, now you hear it live. <laughs> there was a husband and wife, newly married, or a gay couple, doesn't really marry, no matter who. And they were walking through the forest one day, after lunch, and they heard a sound. Quack, quack. Quack, quack. Is that the one you mean? And straight away the wife said, Darling, can you hear that? That's a chicken. <laughs> and I said, what? A chicken? That's not a chicken, that's a duck. said, no, I'm sure, darling, said the wife, that is a chicken. And it went quack, quack again. There you go, it's a chicken. Oh, that can't be a chicken. That is a duck. Ducks go quack quack, okay? That went quack quack, that's a duck, okay? She said, no, that's a chicken. He said, it's a duck. She said, it's a chicken. It's a duck. D-U-C-K, duck. I don't have a chance to get angry as a monk, so whenever I tell this story... about to burst into tears. He squeezed her hand gently and said, Actually, darling, I think you may be right. There is a chicken. And she said, Thank you, darling. And they continued their walk without an argument in happiness. And that evening he got a hot dinner and good sex. <laughs> Is that really important in life? Always being right? Instead of being right, it's more important to be in love. So she says it's a chicken, it's a small thing. It's a, if she says it's a chicken, it's a chicken, okay? <laughs> so number one, he knew what was more important in life. Instead of arguing, being in love. And number two, just because it goes quack quack, does not mean it's a duck. <laughs> that could have been a chicken from Fukushima, or from Three Mile Island here to here. A mutated chicken. <laughs> goes quack quack. And I've told that story for many years, and somebody actually showed me an article that there is actually a chicken who was an orphan and was raised by ducks. And it actually does go quack quack. <laughs> so how many times do you think you're really right and it ends up you're wrong? Now, in addition to that story, because it's always things which grow. What I say these days when people are married, 
Because sometimes, this time I said, okay, did that mean you always have to follow what the wife says? She's always right. And you ask the managers, they can't tolerate that. So there's another solution you haven't heard here because this has just come about in the last five or six months. If you're married, then to solve the problem of arguments in a marriage, because if he's right all the time, that just really sucks. Always making she's right, that's intolerable. So the compromise is, when you have an argument in a relationship, in a marriage, look at the calendar. If it's an even day of the month, he's right. An odd day of the month, she's right. Which means it's even. So don't have an argument, you're having some argument, what day is it? What's the day today? 15th. So she's right today. So tomorrow, have an argument, he's right, so it's fair, fair. Because you can't decide who's right with an argument, so let the calendar decide. It's much easier, it saves a lot of time and a lot of heartache. So try that, the calendar method. And those girls have probably worked out already that there's more odd days in the year than even days, so you're ahead. <laughs> and it's worth it, give, it, give her an extra few days. But it solves a problem. So try the calendar method, and people have tried that and it actually works. Have this beautiful relationship, they have an argument over something stupid. What day is it today? Oh, it's the, the third today. Even odd day, so she's right today. Solves the problem, and it's fair, fair. <laughs> That's even better than a duck story. Can you solve? Have you got a partner? Oh, yeah. Okay. If a person's gay, you have the person who's born earlier, they get the odd days. person who's born later gets even days. No argument anymore. So tell your partner how to solve all the arguments. Thank you. Can I? <laughs> <laughs> it's so simple. What it means is harmony is more important than being right. Hi. So we can do that in the in the um, Congress as well. On odd days, the Republicans are right. Even days, the Democrats. They'll solve all the problems in the in the or the grid gridlock in the in the. <laughs> you think they'd buy that? <laughs> Good suggestion. Anyway, at least they get something done. Yes? Hi, uh, thank you very much for your, for your teaching. Um, I actually listened to your talk on YouTube. Yeah. And, uh, three days ago, I was sitting in my bed. I thought about you. I don't know why I went on the internet. I thought I were So I've answered your, your desires. You think of me and I am. Go so, so I actually have one question. Um, when an enlightened person dies and enters part of yes, yes, yes. where does that person go? Or does that person ever come back? Ah, they realize they weren't here in the first place. So if they weren't here before, they're not here afterwards. Who are you? <laughs> so sometimes we ask that question, who am I? And after a while we find there's nothing here. And when there's nothing here, there's nothing to get reborn again. Because nothing is the very highest. Just before, in December, before I went to uh, Malaysia to give a retreat, a Christian friend came up to me and they said, nothing is higher than God. And I said, yes, I agree with you. <laughs> They said, that's not what I mean. <laughs>
Very good friend, very good month. Okay, very good. Okay. <laughs> very good. Hello, thank you. Very um, good. I don't have a tumor, so yeah. I don't have a tumor to be kind to. Yeah. I do have an addiction. Ah, I drink too much. Yeah. I'm trying to understand how I can be kind to that addiction. Excellent. Because a lot of times, why are people addicted to things which cause them harm and pain? There's something inside, number one, is like make sure you've forgiven all of your past, forgiven all of the bad things which you may have done, to realize you're a perfect tree. So number one, we don't have the self-harm instinct. That's number one. Because a lot of times, you know, we don't feel we deserve to be free of the addiction. Which is why we keep going back to it again and again. But it's great, I love it. Great addiction. I mean, if you like it, enjoy a drink. Enjoy and a drink. But then the next day, you feel terrible. Not so yeah. Okay, so what to do is um, you've got a smartphone, give somebody take a, a, a video of you, you know, when you wake up in the morning feeling terrible. And before you take a drink, play that to yourself. It's called like mindfulness. But a lot of time, when we drink and we do something bad, we're not really aware of what we're doing and actually how we actually look and how we behave. So, you know, if you have a drink problem, get someone to video you just now after taking a few drinks. You know, when you're a bit crazy, when you're drunk, when you wake up in the morning with a hangover, what you really look like. And play that to yourself before you want to take a drink. And then it reinforces you, do I want to be like that? This is one of the problems, if you have a partner in life who's angry, abusive, now when they're getting angry they don't know what they're doing. So take a video of them and play it back to them when they're a little bit saner. When they see what they look like and what they do and how they behave, they get so embarrassed, they go so upset, I don't want to be that person. And then that stops the addiction. Because you know, when you pick up that first drink you don't think it's a problem, you enjoy it. When you see the problems it causes, you really sort of gives you the the motivation to sort of let it go. I don't need that. And you can enjoy life much more. I'm trying to understand kindfulness. Oh kindfulness, you've been kind to yourself. Yeah. Kindfulness. Kind to be kind. You're kind to always saying thank you to. Thank you to your future. Being kind to the following morning when you wake up. So that person, as well as a person who's right here, right now. Okay, thank you. Be kind to your future. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that question. Good question. Yes. Thank you for uh, coming out here tonight. I had one question. Does enlightenment come through insight, or do you have to have jhana practice as well mm. in order to have the Okay, is jhana necessary? Now, I have to go back to the Buddha's saying, he said, if you want to become enlightened, keep it simple, you have to follow an eightfold path. Not sevenfold path, the Buddha was so compassionate and kind, if there was something in that path you didn't need, he would have tucked it and taken it out. So yes, you do need the jhanas, that's the eighth factor, the eightfold path, you do need that. If it wasn't necessary, the Buddha would have taught the sevenfold path. You also need your precepts as well. That's number three, four, five. 
you have to have virtue. Those are all necessary. And if you want to understand why jhana is necessary for enlightenment, there's a story of the tadpole and the frog. Once upon a time, there was a little tadpole and she was born in a lake in Berkeley University. <laughs> and she was a very smart little tadpole. And even in the pond they had tadpole school. She graduated very high SAT score and so she actually went to Tadpole University studying chemistry, still in the pond. And she became a PhD and her speciality was the nature of water. She knew all about water, intellectually, and she even went to the Buddhist temple in the lake where she learned the Abhidharma of water. <laughs> and even though she knew so much about water, how could a tadpole really understand what water is? A tadpole can't understand the nature of water, no more than a fish can. Fish was born in water, lived all its life in water. How can you understand what water is? But the difference between a fish and a tadpole is that one day the tadpole sprouts arms and legs, becomes a frog. And one day the new frog doesn't know what it's doing, jumps outside the lake and is standing on dry land. And that's a weird experience. For the first time, Something is missing, which has always been there. Water. Only now can the frog understand what water is. So can you understand what your body is? You ask a doctor, a surgeon, a coroner who cuts up bodies. Do they understand what a body is? No way. You can be a biochemist, you can be anything. The only way you can understand what the body is is when it disappears, when it vanishes. Your will, your choice, do you understand what that is? No you don't, it has to disappear and vanish. When it vanishes then you understand what this will is. That is what happens in the jhanas. Things vanish, which have always been there, they're no longer there anymore. Weird stuff totally different than anything you've experienced before. And only then can you really understand you know, what this body is, what the mind is, what things like will are. All the teachings in the world, listening to talks, all the intellectual ability you have, counts for nothing next to experience. One of my favourite sayings is, never allow your learning to stand in the way of truth. Okay. Da, da, da. <laughs> okay. That's a deep question for tonight. Hi. Thank you. Yes, thank you again. Um, I am wondering, uh, thinking about this wonderful teachings and thinking about the way that it sort of applies to the dark side of a culture when you're inviting on the dark side. Yeah. Some of us have, in, in this uh, San Francisco Insight, started to uh, think about um, addressing things like climate change and environmental yeah. uh, destruction and really wanting to bring practice 
things approached to that and um, feeling a lot of it, sometimes feeling you know, that angry part and grief yeah. and all that, and wanting to know if there's any kind of stories or uh, wisdom that you uh, have to offer as to how to, it, it seems like it's sort of on a different level when you're dealing with a, a culture or a bigger picture. Yeah, indeed. Of course, it's the overconsumption of material things causes many of those problems. Because we you know we, we look for our, our happiness in shopping therapy, in just uh, so-called getting on in the world by having a big bank balance, by having a big house, a smart car. And one of the lovely things about uh, a religion like Buddhism, we have these examples in front of you. Monks and nuns who have so little, I don't have a bank balance. I don't have any investments for my future. I don't have even medical insurance. You know the reason why I don't have medical insurance coming to the United States? Because if I get sick, there'll be about 20 or 30 medical doctors here fighting to pay my bills. Because I've cared for them and they want to care for me. If ever I cough during a talk, before the end of the talk, there's about five or six bottles of cough medicine for me. <laughs> That's why I dare do any coughing. <laughs> now, there's something really important in, in this. It's like we want to care for the environment, but don't try and cure it. Curing makes you aggressive and angry. And it doesn't work. We care for the environment. And human beings are part of that environment. So we're, we're part of nature, we're not just a problem, no, we're right inside of it. So we're not masters of the universe, we're part of the universe. So we need to care for it. And little things, like the monks and nuns can show you just how easy it is to have little. Now we have like big houses. Now I already mentioned I was born in a small house. So I was in the same room with my brother, we grew up together, we fought, but I couldn't escape from him. That's how we learned to love each other. Those of you who have houses where each of your children have their own room, you are depriving them of learning how to love one another. Put your kids in the same room. Even sometimes people grow up in the same bed, four or five kids. And now they're together for life. If you're in a room, you grow up with somebody, as a kid, you learn social skills. You learn how to love somebody unconditionally, because you can't escape. Big houses are stopping us learn family values. Simple things. So always downsize. There was a story of this woman in England who won the lottery. About 41 million pounds sterling. That's about you know, 80 million dollars. The first thing she did was get a big mansion for her family. One year later she sold it at a loss because she found out it was destroying her family. She never met her kids. They were in a few rooms of the house. The daughter was in another few rooms. Her husband, he didn't know where in the mansion he was. They never saw each other. The vastness of the house was separating their family. So even though she was wealthy, she sold that house and bought a very small house so she could see her children and her husband many times every day. 
Small is beautiful. Great for family values, learning how to love and care for one another. Why is it that men and women can't live together these days? Because they've grown up separately, in separate houses. We've lost that ability to love each other unconditionally. Downsize your house into something small. Even if you're a very wealthy person, downsize. So you actually see the people you love many, many times every day. And simple things like that really help. How many dresses do you need? This is the only one I've got. <laughs> I don't have to worry what's in fashion this year. So keep things simple. And there's many ways that we can consume this. Sure enough, it's bad for the economy when people aren't buying so much. There's also less people in hospital, less people with addictions. The economy balances and the earth is saved. Consume less. And as much as we teach by example. Okay. Very good. You know, I've seen sort of people these days, you know, in US, in Europe, always have these jeans which are frayed with holes in it. I should have kept my old jeans, they'd be a fashion item. Because <laughs> mine had patches in them because I couldn't afford a new pair. <laughs> Go on. Okay, very good. Yeah, yeah great. Okay, so when I was after eight, nine years as a monk in Thailand, I was sent to Australia. I didn't choose to go there. Ajahn Chah sent me there. I had a, a vow. I would never ask to go anywhere. I'd just be sent. And after I was sent to Australia, Ajahn Chah had a stroke and couldn't speak anymore, so I was stuck there. <laughs> so that's, that's absolutely, absolutely true. So it's hard building up a Sangha in a Western country. Now even the Asians, they didn't trust us first of all. You know, who are these people? Are they going to stay? Because if you're going to give donations to say the nuns monastery to make it strong, You've got to have some confidence. They're going to be here for the long haul. They're not going to just give up when times get tough. And you know, these nuns have proved themselves already. So at first it was very tough. So it took a long time to build up a community and places where the monks could stay. And of course, you all know I had to build them myself. I was a builder in that place. And still do a bit of building every now and again. And once we built a monastery for the monks, the next thing was, what about the nuns? So that's what I did. I said, come on, let's do this. So you start off with just opening an account at about $20, $50. You know, one of the great things which happened is, now I was at the monastery, this fellow said, he's a man, and he said, i just, my wife has just given birth to my first daughter, and I want to do something to celebrate this. And I hear, that you are planning to build a monastery for Buddhist nuns. I'm a Buddhist. 
And I want my daughter to have that opportunity. She probably won't want to be a Buddhist nun, but I want her to have that opening, the chance. And he gave me a cheque for $250,000. Wow! <laughs> that was incredible. And that was his faith, and that's how our monastery started for nuns. But then you had women come, and of course the next thing was to give them the full ordination. Now one thing, now I was told as a Westerner, is to question everything. And now find out for yourself. And these days, you now we have great translations of everything the Buddha taught. And in English, good translations, so you can find out for yourself what the Buddha taught. So that's what I did. And of course, you looked at these suttas and Vinaya, and the women in the time of the Buddha. And there was no obstacle, no legal impediment to them actually ordaining. So, no legal impediment, and there was four women who wanted to become nuns, why not? And the why not was of course tradition. But there's one thing which I knew, one of the things which protects me, that you know, I was the expert, you know, for the monks in those times, on the, the rules. I don't just tell funny stories, I've got a good education, I learned Pali, I read it myself, and I was the expert. People used to ask me questions on the final post of the Vinaya. So there's no problem. It's allowed, so let's do it. And one of the things with Buddhism is that it is the oldest continuous democratic institution in the world. Every monastery is independent. When the Buddha was about to pass away, Ananda asked him, who's going to look after Buddhism? Who's going to run Buddhism after you die? He said, no one. No Pope, no head, no Mahanayakas, Sangharajas. Mahanayaka is a Sri Lankan term. Uh, Sangharajas is a term. There's no leaders of the Sangha. The community meets together and we decide. So I knew I was on solid ground because our local community in Perth, we decided, yeah, let's do the ordination. And no one can stop you then. So we did it. And all the humming and harming, all of the, no, 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 you can't do this, this is wrong. The reason why people got upset with me doing this is because they knew I was right. And when you knew you are right, that's why it has a solid foundation. So you do that because there are times in your life you have to stand up for what's right. And after the ordination, it was one of the wonderful times of my life, which hopefully happened to each one of you. I was summoned to our main monastery, and there was about 400, 500 monks there, asking for my blood. No, no, metaphorically. <laughs> and after about three hours of an investigation, like a trial, they said, it all comes down to this. Ajahn Brahm, you say in writing that those four women are not real monks, real bhikkhunis, and then we'll forgive you, otherwise you're expelled. And so you have these choices, and sometimes you, know, you think, should I take the easy way? Because I knew what would happen afterwards, there'd be a lot of sort of problems and trouble. I'd lose a lot of friends, dear old friends. But then, I can't say these women are bikunis. I have to have intent. I have to think, what am I going to think of myself when I die? And I say, sorry, I can't do that. Expel me. So it's one of the wonderful moments in life where you have a choice 
to do what you know is right and to do what you know is easy. And please, never take the easy option. You'll always regret that. doesn't matter what happens. If people kill you, if you're like a Martin Luther King, you know that you're going to get killed. But you have to do it. Your integrity, your moral strength, you have to stand firm, even if you can get beaten up by the police. Get arrested, get killed. Stand up. Be strong. And I, I could do that. I've never regretted that. Yeah, I was expelled from the monastery where I grew up. I lost a lot of friends, but they're coming back little by little. And in the meantime, the Kuni Sangha in the West has grown. You know you're on the right side of history. You know it's, it's happening. There's a lot of resistance still. The resistance has been worn down by the truth. The truth of the matter is, Bikunis belong. Of course you belong. And not just in California, but in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, in Burma. You must have all read His Holiness the Karmapa has come out and said, yes, we're having Bikunis in our tradition too. The wall has got a crack in it. The damn wall is crumbling. The burning wall of Buddhism is being taken apart. And it's wonderful to be alive at this time. So it's not a case of just ordaining bhikkhunis. That has been done. It's training them and supporting them. And that, I tell you, is the main reason I'm here tonight. I was here tonight because one year ago I heard that these bhikkhunis were living in a monastery which was so mouldy that the health department in California told them, order them out. And actually I was upset. Why aren't the Buddhists in California of all places supporting bhikkhunis? Supporting the Sangha? These are the Buddhist people. For goodness sake, when I say this as a monk, the monks have got more than enough. Should have come this morning and see how much food I was given. We've got more than enough. Please don't spend that money feeding fat monks. Look at this one. <laughs> <laughs> so please, you know, that you're not that desperately poor. Please financially support the nuns monastery. This is historic. I stood up. I couldn't give any money, but I gave up my friends and my membership of a monastery started by my teacher, Ajahn Chah. We got a lot of um, bad press. I was in the front page of Thai newspapers for a while. They tried to actually basically get rid of me. But you stood up because it was worth doing. So I ask you now. I don't know if there's a bowl in the back. There should be, but please. They need financial support. and stuff, but this is history in the making, and you're part of it. So please, help. Thank you for asking the question. Okay, next question. Yeah. Thanks. Your voice sounds like um, Something that was really striking when you were talking about when you were talking prison and not identified with your actions. Yeah. 
whether you rape or whether yeah. you kill or whether, you know, you're dumb. Yeah. And not identifying with anything that you might do. But something that I like to say about myself or something that people would like to say about themselves is that they're a loving person or they're a kind person. And I was wondering if there's any value in not identifying with that, not, ident not identifying with kind actions, it's just identifying with yourself as being a crooked tree. Yeah, lots of kindness in you, but lots of faults. One of the first story in the, the Dunn book, as many of you remember, is the two mavericks and a wall. That is really a famous story now. The two mavericks and a wall, the first time went to this land in Australia to build our monastery. There was no buildings at all, just empty land. We were in debt, so I had to learn how to build. I was a theoretical physicist, you know, right up here, didn't know how to use my hands. So I started learning how to do, lay bricks. When I was laying bricks, you know, I made my first brick wall, really careful, every brick had to be perfect. When I finished, I don't know how this happened, two bricks were crooked. And I wanted to destroy that wall. I wanted to, I asked the other monk with me, can I get some dynamite, blow it up, or push it over, anything to get rid of it. He said we couldn't afford that, so I was stuck with this terrible wall which I had made, which everyone could see. I had nightmares, literally, wake up in the middle of the night, thinking that, well, God, what have I done? And when I was there, I'd be volunteered to be the guide when any visitors came, so I could lead them somewhere else, they wouldn't see my mistakes. <laughs> For three months I suffered because I stuffed up the first building. And then one day someone came, I was with them, they saw that wall, they said, that's a beautiful wall. And my response was, are you blind? Have you left your glasses in the car? Can't you see those two bad bricks? And they say, yes, I can see the two bad bricks, but I can also see the 998 good bricks as well. And that really hit me hard. Because every time I thought of that wall, every time I saw that wall, my eyes would go to the two faults. And I was the one who was blind. I couldn't see the good bricks in them. When I saw the whole wall, I realised, my goodness, it's not a bad wall after all. The criminals, or rather people who've done crimes, they just think of the rape. That's a bad brick in the wall, I'm not denying that. But what else have you done in your life? With people with schizophrenia, are you always schizophrenic? Or are you a person who has episodes of schizophrenia? It's a totally different ball game. And as you heard me say on YouTube, it's a professor in Singapore, he's a Christian, he understands this. He's a professor of schizophrenia at the Mental Health Institute in Singapore. And he told me he doesn't treat schizophrenia anymore. He treats the other part of the patient. The part which isn't schizophrenic. And his results are far better than conventional treatment. There's no such thing as a schizophrenic. It's a person, much bigger than those episodes of schizophrenia. If you forget that, the cure is very difficult. That's what I mean about looking at the beautiful side, but not denying the ugly side. Put them together. And then you have the crooked tree, which is beautiful. Okay. Is he left here? So I just want to say, Thomas, thank you so much for being here.
pray, pray to meet you and be with you. And all of them have all of you here. I'm so happy to have all of you here. Please uh, come again next week. No problem. I'll come on YouTube. Yeah. 